Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 12 through 33. So then, do not let sin rule in your body so that you do what it wants. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin to be used as weapons to do wrong. Instead, present yourselves to God as people who have been brought back from life, brought back to life from the dead. And to offer all the parts of your body to God to be used as weapons of light. Sin will have no power over you because you are not under the law but under grace. So what? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves that you are slaves to the one whom you obey? That's true whether you serve as slaves to sin which leads to death, or as slaves to the kind of obedience that leads to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you gave wholehearted obedience to the teaching that was handed down to you, which provides a pattern. Now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in ordinary metaphors because of your limitations. Once you offered the parts of your body to be used as slaves to impurity and a lawless behavior that leads to still more lawless behavior, now you should present the parts of your body as slaves to righteousness, which makes your lives holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What consequences did you get from doing the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God. You have the consequence of a holy life and the outcome of which is eternal life. The wages that sin pays are death, but God's gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this morning we're going to spend some time in the book of Romans. In fact, the next two weeks, we're going to spend some time in the book of Romans. And, and I want to just give you some, some caveats, some warnings, some um, just information before we start. Uh, the first of which is that we are delving into Romans in chapter 6. Uh, Romans is, in fact, itself an extended argument. So Paul has made a lot of points, in fact, a lot of good points up until this point. So, so we'll have to dip in and pause occasionally to kind of get some context of where Paul is. Uh, because again, the argument does not start here. It starts way, way back in chapter 1, right, when we talk about the righteousness of Christ. All right, so that's just the caveat I want to bring over this week and over next week. That this argument is huge. It, it, it began before and it will extend all the way into the end of Romans. So this isn't the be-all and end-all of what Paul has to say about anything. Again, that comes as we go through Romans and get his extended argument. But that's not to say we can't get some really good stuff and and see some things here in this particular text that Paul wants us to see. Uh, so, So first, again, Paul is writing this particular letter to the Romans, to the church at Rome. Um, he's writing them over all sorts of things, but really at at, at root of what Paul is doing in this extended argument from chapter 1 until the end is talking about and expanding on the gospel for the church at Rome. What, What are the effects of the gospel? What does the gospel do? What does Jesus do? What is our problem and what is the solution that we have and how does that work out in our lives from from 
before knowing Christ to being from being ignorant to being kind of aware and then moving on into accepting and then on into sanctification, right? So, so this is a big letter with lots of theological stuff, which I tend to get caught in the weeds in, okay? So that's part of the warnings is if I go off on a rabbit trail, I'm going to throw something at me. I'll try to get back on track, okay? <laughs> throw th- soft things, not hard things at me. <laughs> So, so we're really essentially right in the middle, okay? And so what, what we kind of need to know here as we are sort of in the middle of what Paul is talking about, about this letter to the church at Rome, is first and foremost, Paul is talking about our freedom in Christ, right? So, so Paul has, has gone on before to talk about the law and that the law was powerless to deliver us from, from sin and about how the law actually made us aware of our own sin and about how we cannot achieve righteousness by following the law because no one can follow the law, right? Paul, Paul sets out that, that we are in a pretty pitiable state. No matter where, if we're Jews or Gentiles, Paul says, um, we're, we're, we're just in a pitiable state because we cannot achieve on our own merits righteousness, Right? Righteousness not being good behavior, righteousness being right relationship with God. Okay, so when you hear that word righteousness, again, don't think of doing the right things. Think of being in right relationship to God. Right? Okay? Now that has like ethical implications, but the root of it is that we need to be in right relationship with God and we can't do it. The law was powerless, Paul says, to do this. And outside the law, we are powerless to do this. And this is a pitiable state for humanity to be in, right? We are estranged from God and we can't get there. We can't find right relationship. And so what Paul says ultimately, and again, I'm paraphrasing because it's a long extended argument, is that what happens is Christ comes and Christ fills the just requirements of the law. So Christ becomes the one who is faithful in ways that no other human has been able to do. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, we have life in his name. That he requires and does for us what we cannot do. And we receive as a gift the benefit of his obedience, of his righteousness, of his ability to be in right relationship with God. Because of his death and resurrection, we find that we now, for the first time, are free from the slavery to sin. So, so, so let me put it this way, is, is Paul will basically say we are, we are slaves to sin. People are born in sin. They are slaves to sin. They are powerless to not be slaves to sin. They serve sin, whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, they serve sin. Sin being the opposite of what God wants and requires and asks, right? Out of relationship. Essentially what Paul says is by the grace of God in Christ... For the first time, we who were slaves, oh, that's not where I wanted to be. We who are slaves to sin, that's where I wanted to be, are now free from sin. Right? So, so, so think of it this way, right? Before, we didn't have a choice. We belonged to sin. In Christ, we kind of become unaffiliated, right? We are freed. We are set free to serve whom we will, to do what we will. We couldn't handle it before. We had no freedom before. Before, we were enslaved to sin, and as you, I hope, know, slaves do not have freedom. They're not free to do anything other than what their master tells them. And so we were slaves to sin. We were not capable of doing anything other than what the master of sin told us to do, right? But in Christ, 
we have freedom. Right? We no longer must necessarily serve sin, death, etc. So we are free. If you're sports people, we're free agents now, right? We're not bound to anybody. We are free to do what we will. And so Paul asks a very important question over and over in Romans, essentially. It's like, since we're free from the sin, uh, from the laws of sin and death, should we go ahead and go back into serving sin? Right? Should we sin because we are under grace? Because God has given us grace, because God has given us forgiveness, are we now free to just sin boldly? And that's where this one comes in, right? He says, absolutely not. May it never be is what he says. Um, it's more emphatic than that. Um, I, I don't have a proper English that I can say in church that would be as emphatic as kind of what Paul is talking about here, right? He says, no way, absolutely not, uh-uh, nuh-uh. I mean, like, any emphatic no that your parents or authority figures have ever given you, that is what Paul says here. He says, just because we're free from sin and under grace, just because we're free from the law and under grace does not mean that we can just go do whatever we want because Jesus will forgive us. And Paul gives lots of reasons for that throughout Romans, but but today we're going to focus on this idea of what happens and who we follow. Again, we are free in Christ. And this is the big thing. For us, we are free to choose for the first time whether we will serve sin or whether we will serve righteousness and God. Now, we as, as kind of American, I mean, it's Independence Day in two days, so we tend to think of like freedom as sort of this, this place where, where we're just free to choose any time and every time. But, but in, the, in the language of the New Testament and in the language of Paul, there is no such thing as Switzerland, right? You cannot be neutral for Paul. When it comes to who you serve, you, you have to serve somebody, right? There's no such thing as a neutral country or a neutral person. You can't skate in between serving God and serving sin. You cannot say, well, I'm not going to declare my allegiance to anyone. You have to serve one another or one or the other. Or if I'm going to quote the immortal words of the great theologian, Bob Dylan, right? You got to serve somebody. And this is what Paul is saying here. You have to serve somebody. You will be a servant of whoever it is that you choose to obey. And for Paul, it's a binary choice. It's an either-or choice. There is no third way. There is no middle way. You either serve God, righteousness, or you serve sin. That's the choice. And that's where the people of Rome, to whom Paul is writing, and that's where anyone who is in Christ kind of finds themselves, right? Christ, in his death and resurrection, has set everyone, right, once for all, everyone free from bondage to sin. We no longer need to be bonded to sin. But it's a binary choice. If we are not bonded to sin, we need to be bonded to somebody. If we're not serving sin, we need to serve somebody else. And there's only one other choice besides serving sin. It's serving God or being a slave of righteousness. Now, slave language is problematic. Paul even admits this, right? I'm using language you'll understand. So I tend to think of it as allegiance. We have allegiance to something. We will always pledge our allegiance to something. Now, we may admit what we pledge our allegiance to or we may not. But essentially what Paul is saying is 
we will show our allegiance by who or what we choose to obey. Right? We, we will obey God or righteousness, or we will obey something else, which is ultimately sin, death. And so Paul presents the Romans this binary choice. Right? Don't give yourselves back over to sin. You've been freed from sin, so don't obey sin anymore, because to obey sin is just to become, again, a slave to sin, which leads to death. Sin leads to death. Now, again, it may not always show itself like that at the beginning, but Paul goes on to say, what, what good did it, did it do you to serve sin? He said it led to shame. <laughs> I mean, I think of the things that I would properly call sin, and I'm ashamed of most of them. Like, none of them I go, yeah, that was cool. It was bad, but it was good. Right? I would never say that. The things that I acknowledge and I look at that are sin, the, the ways of my life that did not come out of sort of a, this nature, the love of Christ, I'm ashamed of. The things that in my life that I am ashamed of generally came from bad choices that I knew were wrong. And so what Paul is saying is that you could serve sin again, right? You're free. Guess what? You're free. And so you are free to choose whom you will serve. You can serve sin. He says, but it just led to death and shame. You saw it. Of course, he also says you can serve righteousness, which ultimately leads, right, to life. I don't know how to picturize life, so this is the best I have. Life, freedom, joy. But he says you must choose. You, you can't remain unaffiliated. I, I would put it this way, that, that the actions which we do and the things which we spend our lives pursuing ultimately and will always demonstrate who we serve or what we serve. Um, I've heard it put this way, look at where someone spends their time and their money and you will know who their God is. Right? The, the, our actions will always betray what our true allegiances are. And again, for Paul, as we read it in Romans, it's a binary choice. There is one or the other. There is to follow sin and be a slave to sin. The passions, the desires, or to be a slave of righteousness. We pledge our allegiance in word and in deed to one or the other. And remember, but you got to serve somebody. We can't be neutral. We cannot be absolutely free from all of this. We serve one or the other. We pledge our allegiance to one or the other. Now, putting it in these sort of stark binary terms, most of us would probably say, well, I don't want to serve sin. And most of us probably would not consciously say, well, I know this is sin, and I'm going to serve it, and I'm going to be a slave to it, right? I think most of us would say, well, given that choice. But the service of, of sin, serving sin, serving death, serving the, the things that lead to death that are not of God are often far more subtle than that. As I was 
preparing this sermon, and this is actually next week, you know, two weeks from now, text, but I was looking at some texts, and, and I was reading a story and, and really debating. In fact, I asked Sheldon, should I preach on this? And, and anyway, we were talking about it, and, and it, it might be appropriate. So there's another story in the Old Testament, and, and you may be familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. And so I just want to think about this text in a way that, that sort of demonstrates how we can sometimes choose what is wrong, but we're giving up far more than we think. So the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are twins, right? Born to Jacob, right? These are going to be the heirs to Israel, literally, because Israel is Jacob, right? And Esau is like edges out Jacob by, by a foot, literally by a foot, right? Um, Esau comes out and Jacob is holding onto his heel. Right, that's, that's how the story goes. So technically, by the story, uh, Esau is the firstborn. Right? And unfortunately, how things go, we know that though Esau is the firstborn, he's not the favorite of his dad. He's the favorite. You know, it's not a great thing. But, um, but what ultimately happens is one day, Esau is out hunting, out doing whatever, and Jacob is just cooking some dinner at home. He's making lentil stew. Um, and he's there, and, and, and Esau comes in from the field, and he's just super, super hungry, right? I'm hungry. I'm famished. And he says to his brother, give me some of your stew, right? What happens, right? Jacob is the good and kind and generous brother that he always should be and says, of course I will give you some stew. Here you go. No, that's not how it happens. Um, these two are constantly uh, at each other's heads, right? They're butting heads with one another, and Jacob... Um, in a very unholy act, if you were to ask my opinion, and I think the opinion of most people, he says, sure, I'll give you some stew. Sell me your birthright. Right? And what does Esau do? What is rightfully his, his birthright, he looks at and, and for the sake of expediency and for the sake of a meal, he sells his birthright. Now, I don't think Esau was setting out to sin, I just don't think Esau really thought through what he was doing, right? He didn't think through what he was doing. And so for the sake of a meal, for the sake of a short-term end, he sold what was rightfully his to his brother. Now, we could talk all about the implications of that later, but, but just think of that idea of selling what is deep, what is holy, what is good for the sake of a short-term goal. So, so as I think about this, I think of the subtle ways in which we are willing to sell ourselves back into slavery to sin. Because we often sell ourselves into slavery of sin for the sake of power. Right? So because of a short-term goal, if only I had the power, then I could do what is good. And so we sell ourselves back into slavery to sin for the sake of power. We give ourselves to what is not God for the sake of what we think is a good end, but it's still sin. Sometimes we sell our birthright or sell ourselves back into slavery and to sin for money. Right? Most of us probably wouldn't do that to get rich, but some of us would probably do that to make sure we had whatever is enough. To override what is good for a longer-term goal of security, of wealth. We see this happen, do we not? Rarely do I think that people go into that, go into extreme greed for just the sake of I'm going to sell everything I have so I can have money. They generally do it for a good end. 
But oftentimes it is done through means that are not holy, that sell themselves back in to sin. Sometimes we do it for influence. Right? I, I, I can just make this concession. I can, just, I can, I can overlook this rule. Or I, I can achieve this better end so that we can have influence and get the right people in the right places. But so we, we can do what is unholy just for that. But that is selling ourselves back into sin, for that is not the way of Christ. This might ruffle some feathers, but sometimes we do this for the sake of our party affiliation. We are willing to do things that are unholy for what we think is a larger good. I did put both on there to be very, very sure to say that it happens both ways. Sometimes we're willing to sell ourselves back into slavery to sin for the sake of security. Physical security, emotional security, national security, whatever it might be. Again, these aren't generally overt things in which we think I'm, I'm going to sell my soul to the devil so that I can have these things. But, but we, we sell ourselves to something that is not of God or is not God for the sake of some shorter term goal that we think might be good. But that ultimately puts us back into service of that which is not God, which is unholy, which is ultimately sin. I think perhaps this is the point Paul is trying to make. I know that Paul is trying to make the point not to sell yourself back into sin, but I believe that Paul is savvy enough to know that this doesn't generally happen because we do obvious things. But he says what we obey is what we serve. So if God says this, but we're willing to just circumvent that rule for the sake of something that is, we might see as good, but it is not God... We have sold ourselves back into sin because we will serve what we obey. And we can say one thing, but our actions, our obedience will always, always out who we actually serve. And so what Paul urges the Romans is this, that Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are free people. And so this perhaps is a choose this day whom you will serve kind of text. Right? The wages of sin is death. We know this. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul says we, we get to choose He puts it in those starker terms. We get to choose death or life. We can sell ourselves into bondage, to slavery, to sin, and to death, or we can turn to Christ and receive what has already been given. And I want to make that clear, for obedience does not secure us salvation. I want you to hear that. Obeying Jesus does not secure us salvation because we've already been given salvation in Christ. Obedience to Christ says, we believe that the way of Christ is the way of life. And so we live as we are already declared to be, those who follow Christ in life. And so we must today choose whom we will serve. 
There's lots of things buying for our attention and our allegiance. Lots of things. Some are small and seemingly insignificant. Some are big and are central parts in our lives. Right? Our jobs. Even pastors. Some things that aren't God, even in our jobs, ask for our allegiance that are not God. Money, power, wealth, growth, whatever it might be. Any of those things that may look good but may not always be God. Sometimes our country asks for our allegiance over God. And we have to choose whom we will serve. Because sometimes those things come into conflict. For the kingdoms of this world, no matter how good they may be, are not the kingdom of God and will never be. To whom will we give our ultimate allegiance? When push comes to shove, where does our allegiance lie? And so we are asked to choose today who we will serve. Sorry, Bob Dylan's going through my head. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord. But you've got to serve somebody. My prayer, my hope, is that you would say with me, as Joshua does, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is what I can choose. And so we ask what we will choose today. And all of this, I have to say, is an act of grace on behalf of God. For I cannot on my own choose what is good. That's next week's sermons. But I can alone choose what is good. It is Christ in me. It is Christ who enables me. It is Christ who has set me free from sin and death that I might choose life in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's why this morning we're going to end, not end, we're going to approximately end. We have one more thing after, but we're going to take communion together. For, For this, what we do in communion is a overt and highly, highly, important acknowledgement of whom we serve. Because we could look back and we can say, well, our, our, our life and our security is in, is in our country or is in our party or is in how much money is in our bank account or, or is how much power we yield or how much influence we have. We could say all of that. And lots of people around us do, right? That their value comes from those things. And, but we say our identity, our value comes from nothing other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That our life is found not in any of these things around us, but in nothing less than Jesus' offering of himself to us, his resurrection and new life, because we believe that if we are united with him in his death, we will also be raised with him to new life. So this morning, before we end, we're going to do two things. Okay? This is... The second to last thing, we're going to take communion together. And then we're going to end by praying for um, our teens, our sponsors, uh, for NYC. Okay, so I just, I'm preparing, I'm laying the groundwork. This is a kinetic service. You've moved a lot more than normal in this service. 
So as we take communion, what I'm going to have you do, as we've done the last few times we've taken communion, is have you come up and receive the elements at front. Um, So what I'm going to ask is that when you come, you stand, and then come down this aisle, and then go back to your seats from this aisle. And that way we will avoid a traffic jam that we've had in the past, which is beautiful and messy, but it's easier to do it nice. So that makes sense. So we're going to have you stand, come down this aisle, move across, go back there. Okay? All right. In all of this, just have to remind us that there is life in Jesus' name. In fact, what Paul will say is the only place in which we can find life is in Jesus. Paradoxically, the only place we find life is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. All the other things around us that scream for our allegiance, that we are tempted to sell ourselves to for the sake of whatever, they lead ultimately to death, for they cannot give us life. The only thing that gives us life is Christ and him crucified. And in the promise of life eternal through his resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is life in his name. You are free from the law of sin and death. And freed to choose life in his name. Let us pray. Lord God. We gather at this table in your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, and he ate with sinners. He established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins, and we live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we gather here as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you, Lord God, in praise and in thanksgiving. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them by the power of your Spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ, which is redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one in Christ, one with one another, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world, until he should come again in final victory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And you are invited to come. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a member of any church for that matter to come and receive the gifts of Christ's body and blood. You need only to desire the life that is found in his name. Jaden's going to come up and help me. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. Come and receive his grace today.